Dear listeners, welcome to Faces of Digital Health, a podcast about digital health and how healthcare systems around the world adopt technology, with me, Tiasha Zaitz. Today's episode is a panel discussion about the current state of digital health in pharma. Is it time to stop talking about digital health and just focus on health? Where, in which departments, do digital health innovations fit within pharma? In some cases, they're moving from siloed separate departments to a greater inclusion in R&D and strategy divisions. How are digital therapeutics fitting within pharma? And also... Are we too impatient regarding the expected speed of innovation going into practice when it comes to digital solutions? You will hear from four speakers. Paul Sims, the CEO of Impatient Health, which is a life sciences consultancy company. Jennifer Butler, Chief Marketing Officer at Medisafe, which is probably the globally most recognized app for medication adherence for patients. Jessica Schul, Director of Digital Therapeutics at Vicor Pharma, which is working on a DTX for idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis, and Christophe Jacquet, International Keynote Speaker on Health and Well-Being. This discussion was organized by Curated Health and Faces of Digital Health under the three planned events named Spelled Out. Through the Spelled Out events, we wish to bring clarity to specific digital health-related topics. The debate was moderated by me and Hicham Naim, the founder of Curated Health, also working at Takeda as Head of Strategy, Transformation and Innovation, Data Digitem and Technology. Let's dive in! Hello, everyone who joined this discussion today about the um, relationship between digital health and pharma and how far we've come by today. This discussion is going to be the first of a series of three events this year under the name Spelled Out, with which we hope to bring clarity about various topics related to digital health. So we're starting with pharma and digital health. My name is uh, Tiasha Zaitz. I will be moderating this event together with Hicham Naim, who is the founder of Curated Health. And this is organized by Faces of Digital Health and Curated Health together. Hicham, what would you like to say about the topic that we're about to cover today? Thank you very much, Tiasha, and welcome to everyone. It's, uh, it's a pleasure to have so very exciting uh, speaker today. I am a pharma guy, so I worked in pharma. And I can tell you, since I remember the early days of Digital Health Pharma company, were quick to partner with Digital Health Startups. Because right? they wanted to get a piece of, of the action. And startup, and when they start working with pharma, the hope is to basically tap into the patient population that pharma uh, company for many years have been targeting and serving. And Digital Health Center, they were seen as a good solution to complement basically their medication and basically boost others. However, what's happened in the past, and hopefully we hear more about from our, about us from the other expert, is that this relationship failed to live to the expectation. That in many cases, this nimble, uh, fast-moving iteration approach that we see in digital startups clashes sometimes with the more traditional structure of pharma. And, and the best example is no artists and peer therapeutics. A partnership. But recently, what I've observed is that pharma companies have become more sophisticated in their approach to digital health. They're now better equipped to identify which startup they can work with and partner with and which one they should not partner with. But also, they start looking at digital health beyond the startup world as a type of capability they can bring in house or partner with some startups to strengthen the core. But today is not what I think, it's more what we will hear from our experts. So welcome to, to all the speakers. Just to warm up, I'll start with you, Christoph. Everyone has a different understanding of what is digital health. So how do you see this and how do you see it in relation to pharma? I think that there's a book to be written about how many people, how different people look at digital health. But I think it, it, it should look at it from a, a broad perspective and how we can manage our health through digital tools. That's the biggest the description, I would say, before going into detail where you can actually go even more up to the d- digital therapeutics. I think the important distinction that we need to make here is that it's not about omnichannel, which is 
if I talk to pharma clients of mine, there's often a confusion with uh, omnichannel and digital health, which is definitely not um, the same. So it's really about how can we manage our health in different ways, whether it is just lifestyle or whether it is actually treating diseases or doing diagnosis through digital um, tools. It's not about digitizing things that we do already as a commercial organization. I think that is the, the, the most important distinction that we need to make, certainly when talking to pharmaceutical clients. Paul, you basically worked on events for the pharmaceutical industry for a decade, I think. And then you started a consultancy. You're also a very provocative uh, speaker and interesting person to follow, I guess, on LinkedIn because of very thought-provoking ideas about how uh, the industry could be more uh, agile and maybe a little bit more, a little bit less slow. So I wonder, what are your observations in terms of the attitude of pharma towards digital health and digitalization? I don't know if I should admit this, but I did uh, the events for nearly 20 years, actually, not just 10. So yeah, probably too long. I, it's interesting because um, I agree with everything Christoph say, says, but at the same time, I feel like it would be much better if our definition of digital health was just health. And I think that we really shoot ourselves in the foot by trying to, in the same way that we do with marketing and trying to segregate that out into digital marketing, I really think that we should think of health in a in an all-encompassing way. And also, uh, Christoph said, we shouldn't just do what we did before. I often compare web 1.0 and 2.0. So 1.0 companies like AOL and um, Alta Vista and all of these things, GeoCities, these companies, these names that you don't hear anymore because they've died completely. Like the disruption in big tech has been so severe in the last 20 years that the first generation is gone. And obviously we know the second generation dominate today. But the what happened in, in the meantime? Was there a giant earthquake that wiped out the first generation like the dinosaurs? Not really. There was just the internet got a bit faster and it got a bit more mobile. That's all that happened. But what people realized was that Suddenly we'd hit a threshold where you can create a digital only business model. You can create something that you can't even imagine Uber offline or Facebook offline or Snapchat offline. Can you? These are digital only businesses that are not just repetitions of what happened before. So I think that in answer to your question, we just need to be thinking of health, but we need to be thinking of health in a world where digital means are available to a much larger group of us than were before. And let's not go after the mainstream so much. Let's go after the early adopters. Let's go after the, I know that not everybody has access to everything, but let's focus on those early adopters because they will drive it for the rest of us. Do you have any examples of early adopters that come to mind when well, you just... Plenty from other industries, of course. I think that things like what Jessica's doing right now and she mm-hmm. have a, a say in a moment are obviously fantastic. The problem is that the, this topic is digital health in big pharma and big pharma. I just had lunch yesterday with a guy called Miles Furness, a friend of mine. He was responsible for digital health at Ipsum for the last couple of years. And he now long now is responsible for, for, for a startup. And he, he just expressed it as freedom. Finally, the ability to do all the same things, but with everybody actually focused on how to get a solution as opposed to how to stop it uh, and how to worry about it. And it's just a, a, a cultural so much. Don't have very many examples, but I do think that they will emerge and they will emerge from the community outside of Big Pharma to begin with. And then finally, Pharma will see the light as it always does eventually when other people start doing it first. Sorry, Hitchhiker. Starting with your point, and you mentioned GCT, I think for some images, there was part of uh, Digital Capital Lands where they were leading GCT, European policy. Or DTA. And I wonder what's your view uh, about DTX. I think it would be great to clarify what is DTX because uh, sometimes we tend to mix up digital health and DTX. And second part, it's what's your position DTX today in the market? Yeah, digital therapeutics, DTX for short, are a very small subset of digital health writ large. And I'm after having done this 20 years, I've been in digital health. The definitions, I think, are becoming stale. But in essence, digital therapeutics move an endpoint. They are software that makes an impact on a disease state. So not talking about monitoring diagnosis, we're talking about actual intervention, moving a clinical endpoint, and we're proving this through clinical trials. I would say there are 
less than 200 products on the market right now doing this or trying to do this. That said, I believe um, there are movers and shakers in the industry. I think like or where I am now, they saw where these kinds of products intersect with pharma just because we've hit a wall with drugs. Pharma, I think pharma companies realize that this lock and key hypothesis about trying to solve uh, a problem with shoving a drug into uh, a certain uh, formula only works for 40 to 50% of people in the first place. And then there's poor adherence. So you cannot treat people and be successful just using drugs. And so I think pharma is starting to realize this. And I'm at a huge conference right now where there are pharma companies on the exhibition floor with their big signs and they're serving chocolate and selling drugs. And it's just, it just seems a little old and tired. And I think even they realize it. So the amount of money spent on this kind of publicity only goes so far. And so to really solve problems, they're going to have to start thinking out of the box. And this is more my personal view than the view of my company, but I think Bicor does think this way as well. And, and even just developing this digital therapeutic, we have seen that people are more interested in hearing about it than they are about another another drug that maybe is, is competing with another one. And so there's a market for this. I think there's momentum behind it. I think uh, a lot of digital therapy companies are very successful, especially in the U.S. So I believe that the time is right. And I, I think they want to listen. They want to learn. And it's their own fault if, if they're creating obstacles. It's, a, it's such a great point, Jessica. I was actually at a clinical pharmacy congress in London last week and Paul and I had exactly this discussion. I, I said to him that when I entered the exhibition space where all the vendors were exhibiting, I felt that this is this could be 70 years in the past and it would be the same. Yeah, uh, like so, they're selling cars and it's crazy. <laughs> well, it's probably going to be 70 years in the future as well. You can see why. Yeah. Uh, right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And it's, it, it, that was my first thought. My, my second uh, thought was like, how much waste this kind of an event produce? Because all the things that are there are just for one-time use, more, more or less. But if we try to think about is pharma uh, starting to realize the potential of digital health or how can digital solutions uh, impact pharma? I, I remember six or seven years ago, uh, digital health incubators and accelerators inside pharma companies seemed as something that everybody wanted to have. And to a certain degree, it was almost as if a lot of pharma companies just did it because they saw other pharma companies uh, doing it. And from the those in the industry, they would say that just the main benefit for pharma is to see like what the innovation is on the market and how startups are thinking. So just basically getting a market insight without a real idea about the goal, what they want to or can't do with that. So at this point, perhaps, Jennifer, you can pitch in because uh, MediSafe is an app. It's basically what we understood in the most early stages as digital health. So digital health, I think, in the beginning was really just apps in the general sense. That's what the perception was. And you are very successful in just improving patient adherence. You are also working with pharmaceutical com um, companies. So how do you observe the development of the relationship between the two? Great. Thank you. Yes. And I have been leading into all of these points that the panels are making and we could just have this ongoing conversation. But, you know, Jessica, I think you, you mentioned that in the involvement of where, and Paul mentioned, it's all health. It's not just digital. And we need to look at a our new way of, of interacting with patients and the way that digital is bringing us. And part of that is recognizing and finding the channels in which patients are naturally going. And what Medisafe started over 10 years ago is a platform for medication engagement. And it's a basic app that's downloaded and you can manage multiple medications. But what we've seen in the past four, four years, and especially um, since COVID, is how do you take the convenience of digital and make it relevant and make it sustainable and driving that impact to where you're talking, Jessica, and in, in, in impacting an, an endpoint? And um, what MediSafe has seen working with pharma is that it's going beyond a reach to patients, but an engagement. And that means that it needs to be a personalized behavior modification engagement in which you need to look at the patients holistically and their holistic ecosystem. So it needs to have um, that 
patient support, not just the patient awareness that is in, intervening at the right times of the treatments that are needed for the patients. And that has to be an integrated platform where you're bringing in other players. So pharma is looking at all of the different support for patients from hubs to co-pays to caregivers. And how do you bring that into the patient ecosystem? It, it starts to grow pretty quickly from just reminding you know patients of medications to how do we create this whole digital ecosystem that is personalized for the patient. And it's been amazing to see the increase in adherence and extension of persistence when you start to really support and put the layers in um, a patient journey to successfully guide them through treatment. Maybe I should be defending pharma today in this book because I, I believe that pharma is behind and but we should not lose that there are two revolutions and they need to work together. There's a digital revolution with digital health, but there's another big revolution that would completely change the way we see the future and what it means to be human for us, which is the biorevolution. We're talking here about synthetic biology, gene editing. And, and I think where the value to be is that how digital health can work together with this other revolution that is coming. It's beyond the traditional chemical that pharma is looking at today. And, and I agree with you, Jennifer, that pharma moved away from pure focusing on persistence and start thinking about engagement and thinking also how they can bring the patient experience beyond the commercial side, but also in the clinical trial and having the treatment that are developed for, for a particular patient and not for a size of, uh, of uh, all the patients. Uh, so we've clarified now the basics of uh, what is a digital health, digital therapeutics. What I'm really curious to hear again, your very provocative pers perspective. So where do you see some biggest progress in terms of pharma digitalization and what pharma is doing good today in your view. Jim, it's interesting. You don't have to be the only defender of pharma, although I am <laughs> being provocative. Firstly, what you said, the fusion of digital health and the new the, the new modes of, of health in chemical and biological worlds is incredibly exciting. And no one can deny that cell and gene therapies are not magical in their impact. And absolutely, that's where a new frontier is being built. The other thing I would say, you know, it's easy to criticize pharma for not being agile, but it's also easy to criticize social media firms for being too fast. We've seen even in, in social media, the implications of the move fast and break things attitude. And I would argue that big tech has just as much to learn from pharma as it explores the health world as pharma has to learn from big tech. And we shouldn't always put big tech up on some pedestal because they're going to get a lot of stuff wrong and a lot of people are going to get hurt. That doesn't mean, however, that you shouldn't be experimental. It doesn't mean that you shouldn't have the right metrics in place to ensure that learning happens. I can see Jess has got her hand up. Uh, and it doesn't mean that we, we, we shouldn't say uh, that we shouldn't be trying because we absolutely should be in this space. Yeah, take it with a pinch of salt. Definitely don't just copy big tech. God, that would be a nightmare as well. And in terms of what excites me, which I think was the second, sorry, Jess, I realize you could, I feel like I should hand over to Jess at this point, but just to actually answer your question, what excites um, me most of all is actually getting a lot of that infrastructural stuff so that we can actually have a bit more of a positive attitude within the company. And Unfortunately, and this is going to sound very rude, I get invited to speak at a lot of pharma meetings. I find that the average digital maturity within the average organization is low. I tell them stories about how TikTok is popular and there are gasps in the room. And it's amazing how people don't invest their time in studying this stuff, studying what's happening in the uh, world of tokenization, the world of gamification. These are the frontiers of tomorrow, not whether or not you've got your customer experience 2% better with whatever doctor. We're just putting our efforts in, in the wrong places right now. So nothing specific in terms of a therapy or a product or an idea that I'm excited about. I'm more excited by the system change. And honestly, that's where the biggest benefits will be gained as well. Jessica? I had a comment to add to the idea of tech and uh, pharma being separate and thinking differently in the sense. So just two days ago, yesterday, Google hired the FDA digital health 
chief, and Baku Patel, it's now working for Google. There's an awareness within tech as well that they need to get the health experts and get combined in a way that is not separate. And we're going to start to see this because there are a lot of really smart ex-pharma and health people like in tech now, like in California where I am. And, and I guess that's, that's good news. That's because experiences are needed to bring progress. Christoph, are there any examples that caught your eye in terms of digital health innovation? Yeah, definitely, I think. But I, I just want to piggyback on something that Hisham said, was that indeed the bio-revolution, which was confirmed by Paul, is that together with technology will definitely make a difference. I think there's a lot going on in pharma, and Hisham explained that to say, define pharma. But I think, I think I've worked with about 16 out of the top 20 pharma companies in the world. And, and my understanding and what I've seen most of the times is that knowledge, that involvement, that digital health consciousness. And I join Paul in that is that it's very limited to a couple of people. And I'm pretty sure that Hisham and his team is, is, are, are very on top of things. And every company has a couple of those. But it's a big difference between three different things in pharma. One, you have the innovation labs, which are super hard, super focused. But they are like very often in many companies isolated. Uh, to be honest, I've only worked with two or three of them, to be fair. You have the global companies who have digital transformation roles, customer experience roles, who are very often on top of things, uh, who, who have a vision, but who are struggling to get it across the company. And then we have the 90% in the company, or maybe even 95%, which are very local. And what I do notice there is that they, as Paul said, they, they hardly even know what TikTok is, let alone what peer therapeutics could be or what Happyfy could do and so forth. They might not even know MediSafe, for God's sake, which is on the market for so long and which has been um, promoted everywhere. So I think from a maturity point of view, there's a huge difference between global, local and the, the innovation. And so before we can actually say that, that digital health becomes health and before it becomes so relevant in, in pharma, I think there's a lot to be, to be done. Regarding good examples, I think... What I really liked is how Roche approached the, the My Sugar thing. They were a very early investor. They were a very early buyer. And they kept it aside with about 40, 45 people, if I'm correct, to, to really develop it by themselves. And they worked in partnership. But the culture, the way that they managed it, the way that they managed the data, the way that they managed their, even their progression was, was managed by My Sugar app by itself. And I, I, what we see slowly happening, I think, it's just fairly early, but what I see, what we see happening is the, the tendency to put and to create everything internally within pharma is, I believe, slowly getting out of it. And we are having these partnerships probably as well as, as Jessica is having. Look at what recently happened with, with the collaboration between Huma and, and AstraZeneca, where they said, look, you can have our maze. We will invest. We will be a partner in your board, but everything that is advanced digital you can do for us basically and there as well they try to have a, a standalone approach so i think that the, the struggle in pharma related to digital health was very often should we build this should we buy this should we partner this with this and i think slowly bit by bit the different parts of digital health we, we get in a, a grip of it and understanding what part should we do ourselves what part should we actually rather partner with and I think that is the major thing that I've seen happening probably in the, in the last two, three years, definitely at global level and not so much as at local level where they are still thinking about how can we add something digital to add a service to our products, which is the, an entirely wrong approach to things, in my opinion. I'm uh, glad that we are narrowing down like the general focus to to just like practical examples so for for perhaps jennifer can you share a little bit how medisafe is working with pharma how do you get in touch how do you develop solutions just to uh, for us to be able to imagine how exactly do the solutions look like in the app is it just in-app solutions just enlighten us a little bit Sure, sure. And Christoph, thanks for letting me know that Metasafe is promoted everywhere. I'll give my team a shout out on that one. And we absolutely also come up against the build, build versus buy conversation with pharma. And I can't um, give specific um, name the specific pharma that we're working with because of our um, contracts that we have in place. We are working with top global pharma um, clients for both country focus and global focus. And to give an example, we'll, we work with, with 
from brand to a larger TA approach, but primarily with the brands, they're coming to us and say they, they need to engage the patients. There's one side of the acquisition, but the other side is once you get them, you want to retain them through that first fill rate. So by identifying the use cases in which they're trying to support the patient journey, increasing that rate to first fill, improving the compliance of their adherence, extending their time on therapy. And in many cases, because we're working with complex regimens, it's coordinating, having more efficient care coordination into the hubs or with copay, identifying eligibility of patients that might drop off a therapy because of financial reasons that they don't know about resources available. So what we do is create, it's an, an app for the patients to be able to, to have a branded experience within MetaSafe. And I mentioned before, it's, MetaSafe is a natural channel in which we have over 10 million patients or users looking for solutions in medication management. So we have a volume of patients on our app, but then within our platform, we're able to have a customized experience so that if you put in a specific medication of a brand that we're working with, you would be invited into your own program so that you can have the certain onboarding experiences, you're connected to the resources, and we understand different types of challenges that go on during the, whether it's an antidepressant and you need to make sure that the titration is working correctly and keeping someone in the first 30 days um, connected to their treatment regimen, having interventions and, and dynamic content assessments that are coming and engaging the patient along the way. Or if it could be a biologic for, for skin treatment and someone thinks, okay, I'm done. I don't want to have to do a biologic anymore because my skin's clear. But in fact, you need to keep them going because it needs to stay um, persistent to the full treatment. How do you keep them through that end of the treatment? So we have very specific programs that we built onto our program that are branded for the medication, but then also allow the patients to holistically manage the rest of the medication cabinet because we know that um, patients are uh, managing about five to six medications on MediSafe outside of just that one specific treatment. And it's important to make sure that all of those medications are adhered to um, because it has the impact. And uh, so by going through um, these different use cases, we see that just slight increments in all of these use cases actually lead to impactful results that are in the tens to hundreds of millions um, back to the farm and in routine revenue, which is pretty impactful. And I think it's the, this goes into a different discussion, which we can come back to, but it's also supporting pharma and making those business cases. Of, this is not just a nice to have, but it actually has some impactful value to the organization as well. Jennifer, just one quick follow up as I'm always interested in, in the global perspective. So my question is my probably most common question is where does that happen? Is that just in the US? Is it somewhere else as well? So what's the situation? Yep. So we have clients that we're working with a lot in the U.S., but we also have Canada, Brazil, Germany, and I think we had one in Mexico as well that we're working with. Okay, that's a lot. Thanks. Talking about the good thing, like we said, Christoph, and partnership, I'm really curious to hear you, Jessica, for Pharma. How do you approach partnership? And how do you make a decision? Whether it's a buy, make for buying collaboration, as we call it. What's your thought process on that? Yeah, we are partnered to build a digital therapeutic for uh, rare disease, lung disease called idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis. It's a fatal disease. Like once you're diagnosed, you're told you have about three to five years to live. This creates obviously anxiety in patients. And so we are partnered with Alex Therapeutics, also a, a Swedish company, to build a product to treat this psychological burden. And the idea of partnering, I think, is essential for pharma because you have to have each uh, team do what they do best. And pharma, what we do best is the clinical trials, the setting up, the evidence generation, and we can get to the regulatory process quickly. And it takes a lot of funding to do the trials. What the DTX company does very well is the front end, back end, the AI, all of the things that pharma has never been doing and probably won't ever do well. It takes a lot of iteration and sprint and development and all of that. So the idea was to assign tasks to, to what, what you do well, according to the company. So it was a fairly easy decision and it's been an ongoing 
process. We have you know, constant communication with Alex and it's a really collaborative development. So you cannot just say, okay, guys, off you go, build the DTX because there's also close involvement with patient groups and you have to know what the patients want and build the content together. And so it's very interactive. And I think too, just to add to the point about getting through regulation, I think that's where we need to focus next because pharma is, I can complain about pharma, but I can also say that it's not only pharma's fault in the sense that we have to meet the regulations and the regulators are also very stuck in what they've been doing for the last 50 years and they don't want to change and they are very slow to change. And just even a new kind of evidence, a new kind of endpoint, like, oh no, we don't know what that is. We can't think about that. So we're dealing with endpoints that we've had for 50 years. So, you know, there's room for change across the board. That's a really good point that we didn't uh, mention. It's not just about the industry's desire to change. It's also about the regulation. And regulation is usually at least one step behind what's already in development. Hichem, you also wanted to add something. Yeah, to add, that's a follow-up question to Jessica and also to Jennifer. It's my personal observation you know, that someone starts Thinking about digital health or digital therapeutics and partnership, and it becomes free. Like we moved away from using the solutions when we launch an asset in the market mm-hmm. to start thinking about involving or integrating a digital health solution early in the process in phase two, sure. even earlier sometimes. So I would say there, there's no one way to do it. You can have a standalone product which is aligned with other pipelines and works on its own, or you can launch simultaneously or develop simultaneously. There's no one way to do it. It depends on the product, on the landscape of the stakeholders you're involved with, so many things. And so I think you need to carefully analyze what you intend to get in the long term, like from the digital side of the product and determine what would work best. Maybe Jennifer, you have further insight there. My insight just comes from the experience of work, the relationships that we have with our pharma clients. And uh, we have been focusing more on the commercial side of, of post-launch. However, our clients are seeing what we're doing and the insights that they're getting, the behaviors that they're seeing and pulling it into the discovery phases. So we have been doing a lot more work in the clinical trial space because of the, what we've been able to show and validate in the commercial area as well. I just wanted to quickly go back, if I may, to the regulatory point, which of course is absolutely critical and also include HTA in that. And I'm interested in Jessica's view, obviously with your previous role, Jessica, you're in charge of the DTA in Europe. Are you disappointed by how it hasn't um, been as plain sailing? And there still only is really one country, Germany, that is really open for business in digital health. Because the truth is, we're never going to be able to attract the sort of investment we need to attract and sustain it. I know that digital health investment has gone up, but it's still unproven investment. And if we can't internationalize, if we can't create global solutions, or at least for large parts of the world, then we're always going to find it very difficult and also, of course, the German system makes you tailor your, your solution quite heavily towards the German situation. Do we need regulators to be given a kick up the ass to, to really embrace this stuff? Are we in danger of losing a lot over the next few years if we don't? I would say I'm not disappointed, Dylan, because it's still fairly new. Like in the long term, we've seen one and a half years of results. And so... The thing that has been missing, like I think you know, the German government did a very good job of saying, okay, this is the law, this is how you regulate something and have it accepted in the marketplace. But they didn't include the physicians in this. And that's, of course, you have to do that. No one's going to prescribe, but they don't know what they're supposed to be prescribing. And so I think there's still a lot of room for improvement, but I think it's not up to the government to teach in the medical schools about digital health. That's up to medical schools. And so there's a whole system that has to change um, and it's happening slowly. Like it's happening so more slowly than we would like perhaps. But I think that's uh, inevitable. These are, you're talking about an entire country. <laughs> this is a country in Germany that had fax machines that they were they're still using to send medical information. No, I think there's definitely room for improvement, but it's going to take the younger generation moving in, I think, before we see it as like a, a no brainer, like of course we're doing the health this way now. 
that's a good point and we are going to follow Germany closely especially since the minister that was very vocal uh, about the healthcare digitalization is not the health minister anymore so that's going to bring additional set of changes perhaps just one very interesting comment you mentioned that clinicians were not involved in this and someone from Germany actually made an analysis that there's more just paper prescriptions or just medication prescriptions written in a day than the DTX in the whole year. And I think there's between 20 and 30 digital just apps, digital apps that are approved uh, through DIGA. So yeah, the changes are happening very slow. Now, Christoph, you wanted to add something. Yeah, indeed. First of all, Belgium also has reimbursement amounts for uh, for digital or DTX products. It's not only Germany. Um, France and England and tribe. Yeah, yeah indeed. Um, <laughs> but go ahead. No, I should say fight for Belgium. Go for it. <laughs> <laughs> no, what I wanted to add is that, I don't know, I, but I wasn't surprised to see the uptake. I mean, that it went so slow. I've launched several products in pharma, probably you, you as well. It's Physicians are uh, creatures of habit. It's very hard to change them, even with something that is entirely new. It's very hard to get that ramp up. But to me, that I'm not that surprised, actually. I, I know it will come, but it, it, it will take a time. And in fact, I've coached quite some digital health startups in the past. And the first question I always asked them was, do you really want to be involved with regulatory bodies? And do you want to be reimbursed? Because is that actually really necessary? Is the, first, is the cost that high, which is not always the same as for chemical compounds? Second of all, do you really want to tie your price and your reimbursement to that one regulatory body in one particular country, country definitely, definitely in Europe? So I think that's one thing that we really need, need to be thinking about if we're going into DTX or if you want to have something reimbursed. Because it's to me, it's not always that necessary. If you create value, people are more than ever engaged probably to pay for it. So definitely not from the beginning. I would recommend it to digital health startups. Now, some something else I wanted to piggyback on is what Hitchum said earlier in the combined approach that already starts in, in clinical trials, which is also, I think it, it's a good thing. It makes a little bit more the access dossiers a little bit more creative and makes it more acceptable maybe sometimes. One other question I wondered though, and it's something that we've seen in pharma for a long time, is that as soon as the patent gets lost of a product, then all servers just go down the drain as well. And so the question is, what will do, what will happen if patents get lost for a product? Will it? Will, what will happen with the digital service that maybe might be very well established? And so I, my advice there also to pharma is that in anything that you do, digital, any service that you put onto the market, the first question you always should ask yourself, I think, is how will you stop this? How will you end this service? Because there's a time where the money does not longer come in. I can imagine that Jen feels that as well, maybe at a certain point, is that if a product lost, loses his, its, its patents, then there's, they lose 90% of their revenues. And most of the services, most of the digital support is not, is not longer payable. To me there as well, I think it's a bit, I'm really looking forward to, to how that will involve. And then maybe last comment is that I'm really wondering what we've seen in pharma is this, I need to have a website feel. Then we saw, I need to have a, an app kind of feel. Everybody wanted to have an app. Now we see this thing going on with DTX a little bit, but also with platforms. They all want to build platforms. And I'm, I'm pretty sure Jen as well is, is often asked to be part of a bigger platform that a company is building. And so we are shifted now to every company saying, I want to build a platform. Or I want to be part of a platform and build this ecosystem thing. And so I'm really wondering, are we making the same mistake again? Or do, are, are we doing it differently when we're looking at from a digital health point of view? So much to unpack there, Jennifer. <laughs> I'm nodding and yes, you're right. We have been part of all of that. And I do see the the development of larger platforms for the member experience, all the data that's coming in right now. And I, I don't think we're replicating what's been maybe steps that we might have taken in the past that we could have avoided. I think we're building upon them. I, I think that what digital brings now is such a different level of engagement and insight and, and being able to 
make it so far more relevant in daily use. I feel like there's just a way you don't want to compete by any means, but if, I think the need is to be interoperable, to see how systems can play into each other. And that's something I don't think we've had in the past. And I think now with the, the, with the advancement of technology, interoperability, and being able to create the different APIs or widgets to insert into what end goals need to be really positions it a little bit differently. I'm curious what others might think though. <laughs> Yeah, I would just add to that to say, I think there's interoperable where it's necessary only because physicians don't want another platform if they don't have to. And if it's not completely seamless, because there's already too much time spent looking at dashboards rather than talking to the patient. And if you have seven minutes, where should that time be spent? Yeah, I think I think moving a lot of this interactivity to the patient side is well worth looking into for where that's appropriate. It won't work for every disease state and not for every interaction, but there's so much data. You can easily just overburden the system of physicians. And yeah, that needs to be carefully parsed out, but that technology can do that. It's not a problem. We are already uh, getting some questions for the audience. So just so we don't run out of time, Hane was asking, what change would you like to see? And what do you think does it need uh, to happen for digital health solutions to get more traction? Who wants to uh, take a step on that one? Christoph. I think I would love to see, we're talking pharma here, and what, what I really would love to see is business models that stand on their own. We're too much thinking of it's a service, it's an add-on, it's, a, it's part of something else, but it doesn't have a business model on their own. And I think in many cases, it could be interesting to look at a digital health um, solution from a business model point of view in itself and see how you would love to have revenues from it or love to have data from it or whatever, but it needs to have a business model. Otherwise, I think we've seen so many things being killed in, in pharma too early often. And so we really need that vision away from the rest of the business. That's interesting, Christoph, because on the one hand, I agree with you again, like you see organizations like Leo Innovation Lab and places like that, that have been able to be very innovative at arm's length from the rest of the company. At the same time, I feel like the company will never learn. It was I remember so many people left Leo Innovation Lab when they were asked to come back to the mainstream. And it's, it'll never, they'll never learn. And, and to me, it also feels digital products of all descriptions will produce that learning, will produce that experience if they are part of the overall mainstream model and they are add-ons, they are drugs plus or whatever, any of the horrible acronyms we use. And I don't know. I'm on the fence with that one. I kind of think you're right. Maybe it's just because we're not executing well enough as opposed to because we're trying to do things within the mothership, as it were, or we're not giving people enough mandate. I feel like it's a failure of management rather than a failure of organizational design. Yeah, and I would say there's also a failure of how to look at value because we're not. it's not just about selling and how much revenue you can gain. It's about saving money because the healthcare system, especially in the US, is costing far too much. And I think one way to... Uh, create value is to save payers money. And so that has to be demonstrated. Yeah, at that point, Jessica, we actually created an economic impact model and one of the use cases, care coordination. And we're able to demonstrate over a nine-month program that we've reduced their FTE reliance by over 30 FTEs. And, but our system isn't set up to capture that savings. So they're more interested in what about the improvement and adherence and extension of persistence, because that's top line. <laughs> Yeah. Okay. Maybe I will come to the front from that point of view. If I look to, they are according to Acuia, 350,000 apps today, head apps. And I think if I'm pharma, the first thing I will talk to, it's show me the evidence. Because there's just too many today. And among those too many, you have the good one and you have the snake oil cells. The second one, the evidence helps me be a little bit feels safe to propose that to HCP but also convince HCP to use them because also they don't have time. You say that it's data. So more and more HCP, when you bring a solution, they were asking for evidence. Otherwise they won't spend time. And so I think that's yeah. one that we should start looking at. 
And I think that opens up a very interesting question. And that is earlier we talked about regulation, how slow regulation is and how clinical trials need to be done with digital therapeutics. But even with that, we saw critiques that then when evidence was submitted, that it was perhaps too one-sided because the clinical trial was done by the basically the vendor or the innovator. So it wasn't uh, independent enough and not reliable enough. So just knowing how long it takes to get the patient patients and to execute the clinical trials, to go through data and to, to find results. I guess the question is, are we just expecting too much in terms of the speed of innovations that are happening? Because even from the investor side, there's this expectation that if something's digital, then it's going to come to the market um, in just a few years. And pharma, when it comes to drug development, it's very normal that a drug is going to get investigated, looked at clinical trials and become uh, a part of the uh, standard of clinical practice in 20 years time. So are we too impatient, Paul? Yeah, we are too impatient. I think it is freaking annoying that we allow a decade or more of time in traditional R&D and suddenly the same people expect that to be reduced by an order of magnitude when it comes to digital health. Why is that? It's because raised expectations from the consumer world, perhaps, excitement from venture capitalists that want to get a return on their money within two to three years. Impatient money is a massive problem. And if anyone studies the innovator's dilemma in Clay Christensen, they'll realize that the type of money is just as important as the amount of money when it comes to funding these kind of things. And I think it's a real problem that we are so heavily VC funded in this model because that impatience goes through everything. And like we perhaps need to learn from ourselves. We need to learn that good innovation sometimes does take a long time. And as long as you can demonstrate learning along the route, i.e. progress, if not necessarily revenues as yet, then we can take our time. There's so much waste in our industry from initiatives that have been canned. Yes, because they're another one of the 350,000 apps. Yes, Hitchin, I totally agree with you, but also because we didn't allow enough time for them to progress and to gain traction. And that's a real issue. And I would say too, beyond the gaining traction, most apps are actually worthless. I'd say 90%. But to get the evidence required, which everyone keeps asking for, it takes two years. That's what a clinical trial takes. I and mean, just recruiting takes eight months. So yeah, the impatience is built in because of the system, which, you know, that if you want the evidence, you have to wait for it. Maybe just uh, and just coming with a different opinion, perhaps. And it, it ties back to the, the first question you asked me what, about what is digital health? I think if you talk in DTX, I think it's obvious that we need to have a lot of clinical trials and proof points or what have you. But I think there's other health and wellness apps that could, that maybe in the beginning or for some particular use cases might not need that much proof to already be used. And and so I think there we need to be we need to open up our eyes as well. If really talking about pharma, even physicians, the question is, is physician necessarily the right channel to get those digital health solutions into the market after all? And if it's not a physician, then maybe we don't always need as much proof in the beginning. And maybe we can already start testing things out and, and the proof is then maybe in the pudding if there is no, not too much danger, of course. I just don't feel like that we always need to go into the clinical trials right away and that there's different digital health solutions. Um, that can prove points. I couldn't agree with you more. <laughs> I thought... That's really the point. Is that you go to the channels where patients are already navigating to and where they're seeking out and then seeing where you can build from there. And certainly medicine, yes, is looking at the whole continuum of digital therapeutics and how to advance, but we have a very basic concept that is proven and it has a lot of insights to provide as well. And so you can't you know, neglect what is there to be able to learn from, to start those, the innovation and understanding when you're going into larger investments and, and more of a transformative approach. So Sissy asked a very good question. The first to hear from your perspective, she's asking, how can we syndicate similar pharma innovation initiative and learnings to waste less money and extra digital health innovation? This is being done finally in the topic that uh, I think Jessica raised earlier, which is endpoint creation. 
And thank God we're getting over this stupidity of going in as single companies and trying to create a new endpoint, which is obviously, in my opinion, never, ever going to work. And finally, we're starting to see a lot of progress being done through that. So I think that's a perfect example of where companies have been finally showing. And uh, we have to thank the, was it the Dime Society for for their work on this front uh, in being crucial. I know, Cecile, hi, Cecile, I know that you're also thinking about this from a patient point of view, though. And absolutely, there is huge progress to be made there on the end user front and how we can work. I I obviously bring people together in our industry a lot. uh, And they talk very frequently about how they're not competitive when it comes to this kind of stuff. They're only competitive on their medicines. Yet, we are still not seeing enough single user interface and combined efforts from our industry in producing stuff that works across multiple patient groups or multiple companies for patient groups. So yeah, massive progress to be made. If I tried to wrap up this whole discussion uh, today, we still have a lot of things to figure out, but we are moving from just ideas and confusions to practical use cases. We have to high expectations just because we are talking about digital solutions and regulation hasn't changed and it's right that it hasn't changed to in a degree that evidence is required. Another point perhaps to say is that the pharma industry as such needs to pay more attention about just like the broader development in consumer habits and channels such as TikTok and social media and what they already offer and what can already be found out through that. Is there anything else that maybe any of you would like to add as just a final remark before we close down the discussion. Three, two, one. I did very well. He did it very well. <laughs> Thank you very much. We know you finished today for you. Hey, I have the feeling you've done this before, right? <laughs> yeah, we did. We will do this again. So as I mentioned uh, in the beginning, for some time in September, we are planning to gather some legal experts to talk about data ownership and just uh, data privacy that are all very, very interesting topics, generally speaking. But when looked at more from the legal perspective, become a little bit more uh, complex because, for example, if we talk about ownership, is a very uh, strong legal concept that um, brings with it a lot of uh, consequences. So if you just think about all the regulations and taxes and everything related to, for example, just buying a real estate, that can give you like a, a minimum of an idea what it would mean if we actually just gave the full ownership of data to patients. And we're going to dig into that and into the whole complexity of that uh, sometime in the upcoming months. So uh, stay tuned, follow Curated Health and Faces of Digital Health, and hopefully you will join us again sometime next time. And thank you all the speakers for taking the time today to share uh, your thoughts. Uh, Thanks, everyone.